I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we begin with a book segment looking at COVID and gender in the Middle East uh, with Rita Stefan and Mauro Youssef. Uh, then we turn to May Hassan of MIT, who fills us in on recent developments in Sudan and the context for the sudden descent into civil war. Uh, thanks for listening to our podcast. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Rita Stefan. She's the editor of the new book, COVID and Gender in the Middle East, uh, a really fascinating collection of, uh, of essays by a wide range of uh, women from the region trying to assess the real impact of this generational pandemic on politics, society, individuals, and the like. Rita, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Well, thank you, Mark, and it's an honor to be here with you. I want to express that all views expressed here uh, are mine and do not represent the U.S. government, uh, my other employer. Um, it, it's an honor to have um, been able to do this book. Uh, in the nature of my work, uh, paying attention to what's going on in the Middle East, working with so many activists and, and uh, organizations on the ground, when COVID hit, no one was prepared. And um, many women's organizations and, and uh, civil society organizations pivoted right away. However, as you know, many countries went into a lockdown and the whole social nature changed. Uh, looking uh, further into the topic, I um, started looking for what what is the world saying about the book? And um, what you find online now, this mm -hmm. is where research is, it's mostly Western-based. It's mostly on the experience of the Western world. But whenever it, you, we talk about the non-Western world, it is UN documents. It's OECD documents, Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development. And they're, they're more like 30,000 level um, views. Uh, we do not see the voices of actors on the ground. So this is what motivated me to say these actors are doing amazing monumental work and have to be heard. So I started reaching out to my mm -hmm. network of men and women who are researching and, and, and working in the Middle East or on the Middle East. And this is how I uh, uh, asked my colleague uh, Maro Youssef, who is a postdoc at uh, uh, USC with NSF postdoc, to, to contribute chapter with her uh, colleague, and uh, she's joining us today. All of this to represent unusual voices. Most of the contributors are uh, authors of color or author of, authors from the Middle East specifically. Um, they uh, reflected on their experiences. They mm -hmm. reflected on where they were at the time and what they did about um, not only the pandemic, but also how governments responded to the pandemic. Now, it, it, it's interesting because, you know, this is obviously something which has had a global impact on uh, societies across the world. And, um, you know, and you were both involved with a series of uh, publications, the POMEP study series and workshops that we organized, trying to wrap our head around that. And, um, you know, one of the things which was interesting, as you said, is that there are common themes and patterns that emerged um, across, but there are also things that were quite distinctive and unique to the Middle Eastern context. And, you know, Rita, maybe you could say just a little bit about the, um, you know, the the overall framing of the project. Why, why gender? Why is it so important to look at the effects of COVID um, through a gendered lens? Most of the studies that look at COVID um, don't pay attention to the particularities of women's experiences, and not just women, but also sexual minorities. And um, what we know uh, is that women are the frontliners. Uh, they are the caregivers, both at home and uh, in the workplace, uh, whether they're nurses or teachers um, or, or food providers or, 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 or uh, domestic workers. And um, also most of the policies that were made in the Middle East to mitigate the impact of COVID were made by men using mitil mili militaristic 
methods or, or mindset, women were rarely present at the table and uh, their lives got affected. What we know today is something called the shadow pandemic as a result of COVID. And the shadow pandemic we'll talk about later is the domestic violence pandemic mm -hmm. that spread throughout not only the Middle East and North Africa, but also throughout the world. Women stood up to say something about this. They were again marginalized from all the policy uh, circles, all the uh, decision circles. So this book, again, various sections focusing on various areas, whether it's uh, you know uh, health outcomes, economic outcomes, social vulnerabilities, or feminist responses, they all have at, at the end of each chapter policy recommendations because we really wanted policymakers to know that these women have something to say about policy and uh, their contributions matter. Now, the Middle East is obviously a vast region with widely varying circumstances and, you know, the difference between the high income states in the Gulf with high state capacity and some of the more, shall we say, ramshackle, larger uh, states across uh, North Africa and Egypt and the like. And, and the variation in state capacity was a big theme in our in our publications, and it also runs through this volume as well. Um, uh, Mara, uh, Mara Youssef, uh, it's so great to have you on back on the program again. It's great to see you. Um, Mara, could you say a little bit about, about state capacity and kind of how that runs through um, this gendered analysis of the effects of COVID? Well, what we saw, thank you, Mark, for having me, and thank you, Rita, for inviting me. So one uh, contributed to this book, Sarah and I, Sarah Yerkes and I were contributors to the Poem Up series and you asked us to contribute to this book. So thank you for that. Uh, this book has been revolutionary because like you said, Mark, it's by people from the region who are working on the region. And so for the first time, uh, Rita asked people to reflect on both their experiences and on their experiences as researchers of the region. So it's not just personal accounts. So in terms of state capacity, and you taught me this in your classes, the <laughs> Middle East lacks strong institutions and strong uh, state capacity. So we saw across the region that the response was a severe lockdown, and we saw that more so in some of the GCC states. But what was particularly interesting to me is what happened after the state responded the way it did. So first we saw this backlash of people feeling frustrated and feeling notions and sentiments of authoritarianism again, which they didn't feel before. Uh, since the Arab Spring, people have been pushing for democracy and openness and transparency. And the state's reaction was the opposite of that in a lot of these cases. And I think it really triggered people and made them feel how they felt under authoritarianism. So that's one frustration that we saw. And in a lot of times <clears throat> in the Tunisian case, for example, it led to major distrust in the state and its abilities to execute anything that would help these people out or people out of the pandemic. I think we saw mistrust in state capacity across the world. And we saw that here in the US even, like does the state know what it's doing? Can it actually mitigate this? And that led to a lot of deterioration in the region and mistrust of governments. The intensity of the lockdowns in some of the countries, Jordan, not just the GCC, but in countries like Jordan and some others um, was really quite impressive. But as you say, it in the hands of authoritarian governments um, can have quite, you know, repressive effects. Uh, Rita, can you say a little bit more about the, uh, you know, the nature of the state response to these, um, uh, to these challenges? One thing that is common across the Middle East and North Africa, and maybe to some extent the rest of the world, is the weak medical infrastructure. Mm -hmm. uh, many of these countries have invested heavily in their military and less in their hospitals. So when it uh, when the pandemic hit, the hospitals, the medical staff, uh, and the infrastructure were not set to accommodate everybody. And we see cases in uh, Lebanon, for instance, the death rate of women was double that of men. So the state had to make a decision of who gets admitted to the hospital, who lives, who dies, based on that capacity. 
uh, we see uh, patterns that uh, appear throughout the region. We cannot treat the region as a homogeneous entity. They are what I call the rentier countries, mm -hmm. those that were able to finance the lockdown and finance very much their 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 citizens staying at home and and uh, delivering uh, necessities to them. That economy was also actually supported by an army of domestic workers whose life was in danger. Let's say that. Um, and that's a, that's a real to... hidden part of this that people often forget. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, and of course those are often women who are working in the homes who are disproportionately impacted by that. And they were put to take care of COVID, uh, COVID uh, patients. They were not given, in some instances, a uh, vaccine. They were the last to get vaccine. They were um, restricted from traveling for many reasons. Uh, we have a couple of chapters on that. Mm -hmm. The other type, the other pattern that we saw was the what I like to call the failed states, your Yemen, your Syria, where mm -hmm. ironically the uh, uh, contraction rate was so low just because there was pretty much um, lack of any kind of public health uh, system due to the political and, and, and uh, conflict situation. So these were the co conflict countries, very low rate, very track low trackability. Um, but then many countries struggled in the middle, and those were the fragile states. And um, this is your Tunisia, your Lebanon, your Jordan, yeah. that their economy depended on um, livelihood of people, but then they couldn't sustain the, the lockdown. Ironically, Israel plays um, fits in, in, in both categories because what we see with the Arab citizens is that um, they they got everything late. They got everything secondhand. They, there's a, a very important chapter on Palestinian feminist citizens of Israel uh, rejecting uh, the way that uh, the, the COVID was, mm -hmm. was handled in their cities. So the country is uh, not homogeneous. Uh, the countries are not homogeneous. Uh, really dependent on their capacity uh, and infrastructure. But all in all, Mara is right. Authoritarianism rises again. Women's rights uh, suffer a setback throughout the region, and um, some assess that these setbacks might take another ten years to recover. Let's get back to uh, something that you mentioned earlier about this, the secondary plague, because one of the things which happens with the lockdowns is that families are locked in together. And you do see, as several of the chapters in the book document, these really quite alarming uh, uh, increases in gender-based violence, domestic violence, and the like. Mara, your chapter focuses on this. Um, it's one of, the, one of the chapters that really deals with it. Could you talk a little bit about that and kind of how that manifested within uh, the MENA region and uh, kind of what, how people responded. Yes, I'm happy to. So first I want to um, not really essentialize the region or make mm -hmm. this sound like it's an exception. We saw gender-based violence rates or reporting in violence cases increase across the world. Even France had a, a sharp uptick. So that's something important mm -hmm. that I wanted to mention. And gender-based violence and domestic violence is not a Middle East problem. It's a global problem, and it went up during that period. So well, for lockdowns do have that uh, that effect of locking people exactly. together. Exactly, putting uh, vulnerable women, putting domestic workers with the head of the household during frustrating times, scary times, where everyone is in one house. Usually, people are not in the same house. We saw this breakup marriages in a lot of places. You're not all at the, the same space in the same place at the same time. So what we saw was this went up across the region. There was an increase across the region. But domestic violence, it's an issue that existed for a long time. In Tunisia, for example, uh, the secular feminists started mobilizing around the 90s to combat gender-based violence and to push the state to really take concrete measures. And so even though violence went up, Mobilization also went up on Zoom and everywhere else. Feminists across the region were speaking up. They already had the, the mechanisms, the tools uh, to mobilize and engage the state. It wasn't 
oh, now there's violence, so let's engage the state. They already had those channels open and they knew what to do and they had concrete measures for the state. So we saw them recommend increasing the number of hotlines for uh, violence victims. We saw them uh, demand shelters and to put specific mechanisms in place to protect women from contracting the virus. And so even though domestic violence reporting went up, we also saw a quick response by feminist organizations to try to combat that and troubleshoot that and stop the bleeding. It wasn't the state that came up with these right. policies. It was really the grassroots organizations working uh, in tandem with U the UN and other organizations as well. Of course, some countries like Tunisia and Morocco and a couple of others have a stronger sector of, uh, of women's organizations, women's civil society organizations and the like. Not every country in the region is gifted with um, you know, that particular legacy. Yeah, I agree. And I think in the Gulf, we, we have weak civil society. So it was a different kind of response. And who is getting, uh, who is the victim of violence is also different. So in the Gulf, it's not necessarily the wife or the daughters, it's the domestic workers. Right. And they are the ones that are less heard. As Rita said, it's the shadow pandemic. It's domestic violence that was happening at the same time as the virus was spreading and the state was shutting down and putting everyone under lockdown. So we did see that increase. And we saw that with sexual minorities as well and, and transgender folks, they didn't have the same protections and they weren't as visible when it came to addressing violence. The holes of the public health system are larger for some than for others, that's for sure. Um, but one of the things which this brings out, and um, and this is a major theme, I think, running through the book, is, you know, in terms of why a gendered perspective is so important here, is that there's a, there's a very real uneven burden of care in terms of trying to deal with lockdowns and securing food for the family and taking care of the families and all these things. And it generally doesn't fall equally on uh, on men and women. Uh, Rita, since this is a major part of your own work, um, can you talk a, a little bit about this in terms of how the, that theme came out um, across the chapters? Mark, uh, women have been at the center of care socially and historically and politically. And we saw that uh, even the survey that uh, one of the chapter uh, did, uh, who is responsible for most of the care? Men did not feel that they uh, could do this. So care at home, care for the ill, for the children. We heard about the, the double elderly. burden. Of, pardon me? Care for the elderly. The elderly, uh, the, the, the dying, uh, we we saw many women had to actually quit their jobs because they were also responsible for uh, the schoolwork for the for the children. Uh, we talk about paid and unpaid care work uh, and uh, women's uh, traversing uh, care responsibilities between between home and play, uh, workplace. So uh, all of this uh, uh, combined with low wages overwork, high volume of patients, staffing shortages, inadequate equipments at, at uh, in, in medical facilities, all of this really exacerbated the burden on women. And um, even women who were highly educated, a chapter addresses that uh, when they had those uh, white collar jobs, uh, at they often their homes were too small to carry out their jobs. They uh, were uh, many of them hostages in kind of multi-layered patriarchal system because what we saw is many families moved in together, they quarantined together, so they women had to take care of of that. In terms of um, economic impact. Uh, that varied, and I want to say this: we see that women in the Gulf benefited, and and their situation got, you know, didn't get affected if not got better because they had um, these these are nationals, right? So Bahraini right, right. nationals, for instance, got they they had their caregivers, they had their work from home anyway. Um, they there were many layers of. Uh, impact. What I talk about 
second and third le uh, level impact, not just the economic impact, but also social impact on women. There's a chapter on women academics. We saw the study uh, by our colleagues, uh, uh, Shalabi and, and, um, and Maha, sorry, Marwa and, and Danirmin and uh, Alam and uh, Bertoff and, and Shalabi talk about how men academic actually excelled while women academics actually uh, did suffered setbacks. They were uh, uh, going through so many uh, uh, responsibilities and were asked to do more and uh, adjust to more. So um, the uh, all of this aside, what Maro talked about, the domestic violence rose incredibly mm -hmm. uh, around the region. Uh, men, as you probably know, in North Africa, were used to going down to the cafe and drinking coffee with their buddies. They could no longer do that. There was frustration. There was lack in, of income by the men. So women had to barter so mm -hmm. they could uh, feed their families. There was a lot of uh, social and economic impact that the burden that the women uh, assumed responsibility for just to take care of the family and and everybody that uh, was there locked down with them. And and it's 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 good that you bring up the the effect of the school closures as well and kind of the shifting the burden of education, uh, not just childcare, but also you know you know who's going to monitor these kids trying to learn over Zoom and you know this is again this is a global issue, not just a, a Middle Eastern issue, but it does tend to fall disproportionately on women. And uh, many countries did not have the connectivity or the. Mm -hmm. You know, to connect, to learn over Zoom, you have to assume that every family had a computer at home and multiple com computers if you have uh, multiple children and multiple right. rooms. So each child gets a room and none of that was available uh, in many uh, contexts. And women had to make shift and become um, educators. Uh, countries like Morocco, I want to uh, really um, address that there, Morocco had just pa passed a law on uh, violence against women, mm -hmm. but due to the pandemic, they did not enact the law to protect women from domestic violence. And some of the impact of domestic violence is courts were shut down. Women did not lack any access to shelters. All the domestic violence shelters were, were mm -hmm. uh, shut down. So imagine if a woman ran away from home uh, in, in Morocco, as, as the chapter explains, they got captured by the police, returned to the home, or maybe jailed or maybe penalized because they violated the lockdown law. And these were women victims. So they did not have a chance to even, you know, escape their oppressors. And the law was not enacted to put the men in jail because, again, of COVID. How do you deal with that? The police did not think that it was important to address domestic violence at that level at that time because of COVID. So many women suffered from uh, no place to go. And, and another issue was also access to birth control. The hospitals turned all their resources to addressing COVID. And so there was no longer adequate access to women's health care. And we know that um, Marital rape and domestic rape is a tool that's used to inflict violence on women. So they were raped and they could not get the adequate access that they needed to birth control to protect themselves. Now, Maro, I want to come back to you because, I mean, this this picture that is that we that is being painted is quite accurate of the uh, disproportionate impacts on women. But one of the interesting things about your chapter and about your work is to kind of push back on the notion that women are simply passive victims in all of this and to kind of recapture some sense of their agency as they try and navigate um, these incredibly stressful and difficult conditions. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, you already talked about civil society and women's organizations more broadly, you know, kind of how women, you know, kind of found ways to, you know, claim agency amidst all of this. So, Based on the research that Sarah and I did on Tunisia, we compared 
pre-pandemic feminist mobilization and post-pandemic or pandemic feminist mobilization. And we saw that uh, women got creative about how they expressed their voices and their concerns. They held Zoom meetings with uh, state officials and with donors where they expressed their frustrations and gave policy recommendations about how to move forward. We saw that both Islamists and secularists were concerned about gender-based violence during the pandemic. And even though society was deeply polarized, everyone was being effect was affected by this pandemic. And so we saw a little bit of movement to get both Islamists and secularists on board to support additional measures to protect women during the pandemic. So it wasn't just the local organizations that pushed for this, but their constituents. Their constituents went to them and said, I don't have access to X or I can't access the shelter. Can we have a um, additional hotlines that I can call and, and get advice from? And so we saw really women activists responding to their constituents who were suffering. And we saw this bipartisan feminist mobilization, as Sarah and I call it, on gender-based violence, which was actually shocking considering how Tunisia mm -hmm. was struggling during this period. And there was tension between the president and the parliament and within the parliament, between the different factions and political parties. So seeing that women can rally together and separately to advocate for a common gendered concern during this crisis was shocking and inspirational for us. Let me ask a one final question to Rita um, about kind of how enduring the effects that we've been, that of, of all of this are likely to be. Um, you know, we've kind of moved into a post-pandemic world, even though the, you know, COVID is still raging and, you know, vast numbers of people are still dying, but politically and socially, uh, everyone seems to have kind of moved on. Um, and so, the, the effects uh, on women and the gendered effects that you're describing, have they also been moved on from or do you see them as more enduring as something affecting long term political, social, economic transformations? One thing for sure, Mark, is the economic effect, the net job losses throughout the world are mm -hmm. all women's. Women who left the workforce are not coming back. Uh, due to many reasons. Uh, it's not that they don't want to come back. It is uh, with the many burdens that they still bear, uh, many uh, things, restrictions that they still have. So one, that one, sh one thing for sure is economic rights have deteriorated, retracted, and uh, women's em employment has also retracted. And uh, women's employment in the Middle East is the lowest in the world. So... The few women that were in the workplace are are going back are not coming back. Um, the second issue we know is politically speaking, uh, women's rights have also deteriorated due to one authoritarian regimes rising. Second is dismissal of personal liberties at the expense of security, right? So. Today, we want to, there's a mentality that the state uh, holds the ultimate uh, rights to impose whatever restrictions uh, it wants on its citizens, and any speaking up against the state is uh, censured as well. Um, one thing that we we see, and, and the Arab barometer have, has found this, is that women's place in the family there's a greater appreciation to women's roles in leading the family. Interesting. All, yes, because the men, everybody was stuck at home and started seeing uh, how women could make uh, decisions on behalf of the family. But you could say that we had domestic democracy, right? Or mm -hmm. democracy reaching the home uh, as, as a positive result of the, of the, of the pandemic. In public, we, we had been seeing many women uh, enter the public life, enter the political arena. That number has retracted again since COVID. Educationally, we had mixed results. Uh, young, timid women who were afraid to speak up in class felt that they could find their voice when they were on camera or off camera. 
so uh, psychologically that helped some women, but um, education has also changed and who got the right to education and who didn't. There are, um, there are populations that never recovered, refugees, um, LGBTQI uh, communities who were actually left out of the uh, social care and, and political uh, decision-making. They did not have access to any, uh, any, any uh, social benefits. They're not going away. We saw many uh, young girls who are refugees get married early on. So early marriage is back and thriving now, especially among these communities. All in all, we saw that pre-COVID inequalities were exacerbated by the pandemic and continue to be very significant and, and uh, present. Today, we call on all governments to start thinking about what's life after COVID, not just infrastructure, economy, but how do we make sure that those inequalities are actually uh, overcome or bridged because the poor got extremely poorer due to the lockdowns and uh, should the, the world suffer another global disaster like this, I don't think we can take it. So um, we call in the book that any solution women have to be at the table. Any solution must involve women in the decision-making and the, in the, in the design, in the solution. And unfortunately, we don't see that yet. Well, thanks. We've been speaking to Rita Stefan and Mara Yosef about this uh, really important new book, uh, COVID and Gender in the Middle East. the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and this week we're joined by May Hassan of MIT uh, to talk about what's going on in Sudan right now, the uh, the rapid and uh, quite devastating uh, eruption of a civil war, uh, the aborted hopes of a democratic transition. Um, May, welcome back onto the program. Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be on the, the podcast, though, under quite distressing circumstances. Why don't we start maybe by talking a little bit about where things stand now and uh, catch listeners up who haven't been paying attention to how things have gotten to this point. So fighting and hostilities broke out this past Saturday um, across the country, but largely in the capital city of, of Khartoum. Um, fighting broke out between Sudan's two main security organs. Uh, we have on one side the Sudan, Sudan Armed Forces, or SAF, and on the other side the Rapid Support Forces, or the RSF. Um, SAF is, is headed by Abdel Fadih uh, al-Burhan, whereas the RSF is led by uh, Mohammed uh, Dagalo, which he, and he's commonly referred to as Hemeti. And so let's talk a little bit about each of those. Uh, they were they were allied um, in bringing out the coup uh, in the first place. That's right. They were allied. Um, start, so back in 2019, uh, these two men joined together to oust longtime dictator Omar Hassan al-Bashir after months and months of popular protests and mass mobilization um, in the streets of Khartoum, but also all across the country. Um, and they ended up creating the, the the transitional military council or the TMC, and them and they they together along with a whole host of other military elites and uh, other elites from the internal security apparatus, ended up negotiating with the civilian forces through the FFC, the Forces for Freedom and Change. Um, negotiating what was supposed to be a transition to, to democracy, a three-year period in which, you know, civil society could, could rebuild itself and the country could get ready um, for, for the path to elections. But uh, Al-Burhan and Hemeti were uh, not willing to, to play along. And then they joined together again in October of 2021 to mount um, an autogaloop um, or a self-coup that Burhan was, was leading the transition. He was supposed to hand off power um, in late 2021 and decided he didn't want to do that. And so um, together they they launched an autogaloop, a self-coup um, to keep Burhan in power and prevent the civilian forces from taking over the rest of the transition. 
Now, the RSF and Hamedi uh, have a particular role in all of this, They're not exactly regular army, and they have quite a history um, in Darfur and uh, during the revolution itself. Tell us a little bit about Hamedi and what he represents. Yeah, Hamedi um, was part of the, um, or the, the force that he re- leads now, the RSF, really grew out of the, the Janjaweed militias that um, really engaged in scorched earth tactics all across Darfur, starting in the early 2000s. So um, uh, rebel groups in, in Western Sudan, because they had been neglected for, for so long by the, the central state, you know, took up arms against uh, Omar Hassan al-Bashir, Sudan's last dictator, um, took up arms against him, um, you know, for good reason. But um, Omar Hassan al-Bashir, instead of relying on SAF to put down that um, uprising, in part because SAF is like a conventional military that isn't as equipped, isn't as nimble, isn't as agile in, in um, you know, uh, rugged terrain, instead relied on these Janjaweed um, militias, these, these Arab militias from um, a different ethnic group than the ethnic groups that, that were fighting against the state. Um, armed them, relied on them to put down that uprising. And then by 2013, had started to incorporate some of these Jesuit militias into the Sudanese state. And then by 2017, actually made um, the, the RSF an official paramilitary organization um, on the same level, giving it the same institutional uh the same institutional status pretty much as as the army. So instead of the leader of the RSF reporting to the general joint chiefs of staff of the army, instead the leader of the RSF, Hameti, reported directly to, to the head of state. And, and so in this sense, you know, Hameti kind of grew out of uh, this Jinjuid militia, but, you know, uh, uh, Bashir in elevating these these militias and then elevating the RSF in general, in a sense, tried to coup proof his regime, right? And so, if he was worried about any type of, of disloyalty um, coming out of the ranks of, of SAF, well, here's this new force that he, that he's created that's completely under his command now, that's really capable, um, quite strong, um, that could kind of act as a counterweight to to this. SAF uh, in the event that SAF tried to um, launch a coup against him. Now, when the when the protests break out in late 2018, um, you know, these are, you know, as we all remember, these were kind of large scale civilian led, uh, civil society led protests against Bashir. Uh, they weren't exactly calling for military rule, um, but they also uh, there were particular moments of extreme violence against protesters in which some of these military uh, institutions were implicated. Yes. Um, so the, the the protests, you know, on the opposite didn't call for military rule at all. They wanted an end with a military rule. Um, but uh, that that was not the the case. Um, and in you know, though the civilian, so, so during the course of the uprising, um, a lot of there's a lot of violence by the Sudanese state, not just from the army or RSF, but from all from all hosts of all the security organs in the state, enacting large amounts of violence on on very peaceful protesters. And then during the actual and after the um, after Bashir left office after he was cooed out, and during this transition period, um, the the armed forces still engaged in a whole host of uh, of violence against protesters. Probably most notably, um, there was a peaceful sit-in in in the aftermath of the uprising to kind of demand uh, and and show the military that civilians were really serious about a really strong uh, transition or to, to, to really, you know, show support for the civilian forces that were negotiating uh, for um, a complete transition to democracy. Um, but then the armed forces together, soldiers in, in the armed forces, in uh, violently broke up this peaceful sit-in, killing, um, I believe, like 125 people in the course of just one morning. So Hamete then is coming out of, you know, the violence in Darfur. Uh, the protesters have a particular memory of the attack on the sit-in. And so there's a kind of a, a history of mistrust there um, of, of him and the RSF specifically. Is that also the case with the with the SAF and with the uh, the more official military? 
You know, this is a complicated question, um, Mark. Um, in, in a sense, it depends who you're asking and at what time. At what time, because you know, SAF has committed a whole host of atrocities all over the country. Um, you know, there are uh, troops fighting in, in south of the country. They did fight, fight a little bit in, in Darfur um, and, and SAF. Um, so, so SAF isn't, even though they kind of purport themselves to be like the defenders of the constitutions, the defenders of the country, um, they still have engaged in a whole host of violence against their own citizens. That said, um, the, the, the violence and the scorched earth policies that, that, the, gender, that the RSF has engaged in um, tend to be seen as, as unequivocally worse. Um, it's a much more ethnicized group than, for instance, SAF. Um, different civilian groups have ended up lining up behind SAF or RSF. Um, and what I've found, I don't want to say puzzling because I understand, I see how it came about, but something um, that's been really shocking is the extent to which civilian opposition po po uh, politicians have actually lined up behind Hemeti um, in the not 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 since the, this this conflict broke out on Saturday, but in the period between the Agni Loop and and this past week, a lot of civilian opposition po politicians were lining up behind Hemeti because he was saying all the right things about wanting to engage in this democratic transition. Um, Hemeti recognizes he has a solid base of popular support. Um, he's, he's quite rich and is, is okay giving out money, for instance. Um, and obviously he has a lot of uh, um, tribes or uh, ethnic leaders who, who are behind him. And so Hemeti recognizes that under a quote unquote democratic um, Sudan, or at least one in which there are there's real electoral competition, it's not out of the question that he would do exceedingly well. And so he's actually um, been on the forefront within the military coalition for a fight for, for pushing for elections. I don't want to say democracy, but he has been um, trying to actually get a demo, uh, an electoral transition through. And so in part because of that, a lot of the opposition civilian uh, forces have actually, you know, lined up behind him um, against uh, Borhan. Though this is all before um, the events on Saturday. Now, and one last wrinkle in this is that Burhan and, and the SAF, they come out of the legacy of Bashir's uh, Islamist state. And Hamethi has been using a lot of rhetoric of anti-Islamism and uh, in line with what you've heard from, uh, you know, like General Sisi in Egypt and other places. Um, so how does that what, what's going on there in terms of the way Islamism is being brought into this conflict? Yeah, so I you know the, the the connection between Islamists and and the army in Sudan is very different than than the rest of the Middle East. In the rest of the Middle East, especially thinking about Egypt in particular, there are on complete opposite sides of, of the spectrum. You know, Sisi himself is quite a religious and a devout man, but but very you know against Islamism, um, and the Muslim Brotherhood in particular. Um, what's interesting is in Sudan, the Islamists and the military have been fused. Um, so Al Bashir's uh, Islamist party, the um, uh, the National Congress Party itself and the, the National Islamic Front um, itself is a movement that grew out of the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, it grew out of um, the, the teachings of, of the Sudanese Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Hassan al-Turabi. Um, but Hassan Sheikh al-Turabi, uh, al he, he split from the, Islam, uh, from the Muslim Brotherhood early in, in his life. And so he's not a Muslim Brotherhood, um, not a Muslim brother per se, though his movement is quite aligned with it. Um, anyway, so what, what I was getting at is Al-Bashir came out of the army and um, the, the Islamist movement in Sudan has really, infiltr really infiltrated a whole host of different state organs, primarily, um, you know, the, the security forces um, in general. And uh, so the, the army itself, um, yeah, has a, has a lot of Islamists in it. In it. And so it's very interesting that the, the, the SAF is so closely allied with Egypt, um, precisely because of this Islamist, non-Islamist dilemma. But I think the reason why Egypt is, is still, you know, backing Burhan and has been for some time is I think it's just real politic, real politic, right? That um, Egypt really cares about who is who's running the country to its in its southern border and very much cares about its lifeline, the, the who, who's in control of the Nile and um, sees SAF as, 
as you know being able to to negotiate with SAF to, to secure that resource for itself. And I imagine Hamethi taking an anti-Islamist line has perhaps consolidated some of the support you were describing from the civilian side. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, people uh, definitely see Islamists as creeping back in into Sudanese politics through Burhan. He released a whole host of Islamists that had been jailed right after the uprising. Um, he completely uh, abrogated uh, and canceled a lot of reforms that had been underway that were meant to dismantle the, the Islamist state. Um, so people do recognize that Burhan is very much siding with, with the Islamists. Um, Hamiti himself uh, admitted that the, the Atagulub coup in October 2021 was, was a mistake, in part because he saw these Islamists you know, entering the state and, and could kind of see Islamists were the ones who were pulling the, the trigger on a lot of these, on a lot of these decisions. Um, one re- rumor that I've heard about the start of hostilities um, this past Saturday is that it wasn't the you know, it wasn't the regular army command, but it was like a small Islamist uh, faction allied with Bashir um, that it's that uh, recognized that as Sudan moves closer and closer to signing an actual democratic um, agreement, actually signing a transitional, uh, a new transitional framework, it would be that much harder for the Islamists and, and, and Bashir's old, old uh, elites to get back into power. And so kind of saw it as like, now is their time to strike while, um, you know, right before the transitional agreement got passed. And that was what I was going to ask you is if you could talk a little bit about what then triggers this immediate crisis. And, and, you know, looking at it, it's um, the most remarkable thing about it, perhaps it's happening in Khartoum, where despite all the violence that Sudan has gone through, the wars haven't, for the most part, hit the capital city like this before. And so this is pretty shocking for everybody. Yeah. The, um, the, uh, so I'll take the, the first part of your question, uh, which was um, what actually sparked mm-hmm. this violence. And I think the uh, the main thing that the main factor was um, security sector reform. And so uh, Burhan and Hameti were in talks to finalize um, a transitional, uh, a transition, a new transitional uh, agreement called the Framework Agreement. And the largest sticking point, uh, by far, was security sector reform and about how to create one national army that would include both, obviously, SAF um, and also RSF. Um, Burhan was like, "Let's do this quick. Let's do this in two years. Let's get it done with." Whereas Hemeti, you know, for for obvious reasons, is like, "Hold on, uh, this is going to take a much much longer time period." He was advocating for for a ten year, ten plus year um, integration process, and um, this was the last sticking point, pretty much in in the signing of this framework agreement. And um, but at the same time, the the West kept putting up um, like deadlines for when this agreement. To be signed, and so you could just see like a, a train, a, a, you know, coming closer and closer um, um, uh, to a cliff, and then finally uh, tensions just really mounted. And I think that's what really, really sparked. That was the the, the most immediate spark for um, the hostilities this past week. Uh, per your question about fighting in in Khartoum, you know, it's Sudan has been through numerous civil wars, civil conflicts. Um, but as you said, most of them are happening, most of them happen in the periphery. And in part because of all this fighting in uh, in the periphery, so many people have have, have taken refuge in Khartoum. Um, estimates, the city, uh, the country hasn't had a census in, in more than a decade. The last time I talked to a census official um, after the uprising, he, he had quoted me as saying that there were about eight, up to 8 million people living in the capital city. That's a lot of people. And so for this many people to be to be under siege is, is just so tragic. Um, and especially given the, 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 the food insecurity situation already going on in, in, in Sudan. Um, I read a report from World Food Program that a third of Sudan's uh, 45 million population is is food insecure and is relying on food aid. I've been reading, just... yeah, and I've, and I've been reading reports of indiscriminate shelling and um, kind of armed looting campaigns taking place. Um, sounds incredibly dangerous. Yeah, um, my, uh, I have a lot of family in, in Khartoum and just hearing the reports from them about, you know, the, 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 the gun shells 
uh, or sorry, the, the the gunshots starting at dawn. Um, the as you were saying, the indiscriminate shelling, um, grenades being dropped everywhere, um, rogue bullets entering um, apartments. It's yeah, from. I, for, for me, one of the first things that I, I was worried about is like, well, how are they going to get food? How are they going to get water or supplies? But something that, that, you know, the luxury of not being in a war, war zone is you, for, you don't realize how anxious and tense and worried um, everyone must be. And so whenever I talk to any of my family members, that's just what, what comes to the, for, the forefront first, that like, we can't sleep. We're so nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my my child is throwing up all of the time. Um, my other child like wakes up every twenty minutes at, at night screaming, um, and the salmon of it is just it's just hard to, to to capture. So obviously, right now, civil society organizations and uh, and and people are mostly focused on hunkering down and trying to survive and trying to help um, people to 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 cope. Um, over in the longer run, though, we're in a situation where, in a sense, the the, the people who brought about this uh, potential transition and brought down Bashir, in a sense, right now, they're just like the backdrop for this uh, military to military conflict. You know, where do civilian forces stand in the middle of, of, of all of this? You know, is there any way for them to regain some kind of political voice in the middle of this uh, this breakdown? Yeah, Mark, that's a that's a tough question. And part of me, like, I'm not sure how to answer that question. Do I answer right, with, right. with putting on the ground or what I want to happen? Because clearly the reason that we're in this mess is because civilian forces weren't at the negotiating table. Um, so so for this framework of agreement that was, you know, the, the most proximate cause of, of this conflict. Um, and the actual negotiating and the bargaining for security sector reform, civilian forces weren't at the table at all. It was done purely by Western um, uh, powers alongside Burhan and, and Hameti. And so for, for the people that it matters most, you know, they're, they're not there. Um, at the same time, right now, it's it's unclear the role that civilian opposition can play at this moment where, where you know, guns are, are reigning. Um, I heard recently that the... Um, Islamists who are um, actually have like a 100% kill list uh, for, I mean, this is a rumor, but uh, a rumor from, 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 from a contact um, that I trust and saying that these Islamists like have a a hit list of like a hundred civilian politicians that, you know, once they get back into power through, through this war are, are hoping to, to go through to like further quiet the opposition and to prevent any, any more, um, uprising. So the um you mentioned uh kind of the role of western diplomats and I think that there's been some attention now to the international role which uh, in in all of this and you know on the one hand you have this quartet of countries that are supposedly trying to navigate the various political process and now the crisis but they're also several of them are also actively supporting one side or the other in the in in the conflict. And, you know, how do you think about the role of the international actors in, you know, kind of Sudan's trajectory over the last uh, over the last couple of years? So when I think about the role of international actors, part of you know, there's so many different ones at play. On on the one hand, we have some some enablers, right, like Egypt or the UAE or Saudi Arabia that are very much backed uh the um different armed mm-hmm. uh, either staff or, or rsf and helped enable them and give them international credence um when i think more so about western powers there i i it's part of me just wishes that western powers had had taken a stronger stance in ensuring better civilian representation at the negotiating table um and in pursuing and in a sense not taking the general's claims, not taking the general's words at face value. You know, these, these men are going to say whatever they they can to try to get the West out of, uh, of the country and so that they can keep, um, mm-hmm. you know, pre- prevent democratization. Um, and that the UN, the US, um, special envoys, you know, were, were willing to, to, to listen to those words as opposed to really integrate or really interrogate what the incentives of these men are or design better um, 
agreements that more took took the voices of um, the street um, or other organized parts of, of society, um, I think we might be in a different place. So one thing about these Western, you know, peacemakers and the United Nations and the like is that generally speaking, they prefer to deal with states and uh, and they prefer to kind of work within formal institutions and the like. And of course, that doesn't really seem to work in this context when the state itself is so divided and weak. I mean, is that part of the problem? I think it's definitely part of the problem, and it's a trend that we're seeing all across the region. Um, so, I mean, for for good reason, the UN, uh, the US, Western powers, they want to work with formal. I mean, if we think, if we're thinking specifically about about um, like the opposition want to work with the formal opposition. They want to work with named groups. And so you see all these, for instance, democracy promoting workshops that have been trying to, that invite, for instance, leaders of opposition parties or invite uh, leaders of women's groups and the like. And that's been all fine and good. But, you know, when thinking about the Sudanese uprising, who are the people who are actually leading mobilization um, during 2018, 2019? And then after uh, and then during the transition process, who who kept the mobilization going, it's what we call the quote unquote street. There were these informal neighborhood resistance committees that were very horizontal, that were um, didn't really have uh, leadership, um, weren't, you know, didn't keep minutes, for instance, like a traditional opposition party, um, in part because the, the, that nimbleness and that agility is what prevented them from being repressed in the first place. And so these, you know, when we think about who actually has the backing of the Sudanese people. I think a lot of people would say, you know, we should listen to these neighborhood resistance committees. But then that puts the West in a really, really hard dilemma, right? And so going back on my earlier answer, like, who is the West actually going to negotiate with? And you have this formal structures, formal structures and political parties, people who are trained and who have engaged with the West before, or these, these youth who, yes, are plugged into what's going on, but don't have a way of aggregating their voices. Um, and this is something that, uh, you know, for, from your position, I'm sure you've seen like through a lot of the Iraq movements and what's going on in Jordan, what's going on in Algeria, what's going on in Iraq, that many of these uh, opposition movements are are opting for informality and are opting for no structure, um, which makes mobilization a lot easier. But then when it comes time to the negotiation side, like after you've, 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 you've won power, like that just makes it that much more difficult. Yeah, and at some point there's gonna have the the conflict is hopefully going to uh, come to an end, and before it before this it gets completely out of control, and yet it's difficult to see where the breaks are going to come from at this point. Uh, international ceasefire negotiations don't seem to be adding up to anything. Both sides seem like they want to fight and and win, it, no matter what the cost. Yeah, and the rhetoric that Hameti and Al-Burhan have been using and lobbying against each other, on the first day of the conflict, um, Hameti called Burhan a dog. And like, you know, that's not uh, that's not a nice term in any language, but but in, in, in Arabic especially, that's a huge insult. And so it's unclear how, I, I don't even, I can't even imagine them coming to the negotiating table anymore. Um, it just seems as though um, they really are, are in it for the long run. So yeah, the last question would be that, you know, from your vantage point, having, you know, both studied this from a research capacity, but also, you know, dealing on a personal level, you know, what do you think are the things that people who are watching Sudan from afar should be paying the most attention to right now? What are the things that uh, as political scientists, as most of our listeners are, you know, what do you think we should be paying attention to that maybe we're not? One of the things that I've been paying attention to is that the extent to which this conflict is going to regionalize or how it's going to, to, to change. And so one thing I, I think about is, well, if for whatever reason, if SAF gets an upper hand in Khartoum, the issue is that Hameti has a huge regional base of support in Darfur. And then, you know, if, if SAF does get that for hand, this conflict isn't going to, to, like, it'll leave Khartoum, but it'll just go and create um, an even bigger conflict in, in, in Darfur. Um, alternatively, I think a lot about the extent to which other region, other countries in the region might get involved. And so I mentioned Egypt earlier, thinking about their water, um, thinking about the, about the Nile. If Egypt ever were to get involved, I can imagine a situation in which Ethiopia, which, you know, rightly so, worried about the Renaissance Dam, um, gets in not 
you know, on behalf of RSF, but probably more so against whoever is siding with Egypt. Um, I could also, you know, Hameti's um, ethnic group, um, these, these Arab um, herding tribes aren't just in, in Sudan, but have co-ethnics all across the Sahel. And so we can imagine a situation in which, um, you know, fighters are recruited from as far west as, as Mali. Um, but we could also imagine a situation in which like SCAR, Central African Republic or, or Chad um, starts engaging in, in the mm -hmm. fighting as well. So there could be the prospect for not only a civil war, but uh, one of these uh, one of these re one of these conflicts that metastasizes into a fully regionalized conflict of which we've seen far too many. Yeah, um, I mean, I think those are worst case scenarios, but I feel as though each new day brings us closer to um, these worst case scenarios. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, May Hassan of MIT for joining us uh, and to help us to understand what's happening in Sudan. Mm -hmm.